welcome to Anchor Farm. I'm your host, John Bazaar. I'm an associate professor of pharmacy practice here at the supporting sponsor of Anka Farm, the Bill Gatton College of Pharmacy. And I'm recording this on October 13th, a few days early before the release, here in my office at Building 60 in Mountain Home, Tennessee on the VA campus. Surrounded by Johnson City on all sides, it's great to be back in the office. Both my daughters are in school respectively together for the, at the same time for the first time since early March. Uh, I had a huge stack of throwaways when I walked in in my mailbox and on my uh, desk. Uh, recording this a few days early because I'll be back to where uh, most of my training started. Uh, heading back to Charleston this weekend uh, with the wife. Uh, as a getaway, sort of a 10-year anniversary celebration sort of a thing. Uh, and what that means is there's going to be huge oncology uh, news. There'll be a new drug approved uh, before Thursday. There'll be a, a big publication in tomorrow's New England Journal of Medicine. That's going to happen when you hear this. Like, why isn't he talking about this brand new drug that was approved, this big study that just came out? It's because I'm recording this early. But you know what's going to happen. That's the way oncology pharmacy news moves. Uh, today we're going to do a little bit of a... A history lesson uh, about fulvestrant or Fazlodex and how we got the dose that we got and how we underdosed Fazlodex for like eight years. Uh, so let's start with fulvestrant. Okay, it's a uh, an estrogen receptor antagonist and estrogen receptor down regulator. Structurally, it's similar to estradiol. Uh, in fact, if you looked at an image of fulvestrant, you would confuse it for estradiol uh, if you're like me and, and not you know, a med chem expert. Uh, but it binds to the estrogen receptor, stops estrogen receptor mediated signaling, and then causes degradation of estrogen receptors. So it's a pretty nice little uh, uh, anti-hormonal agent. Uh, it does require uh, internal, um, uh, internal muscular and IM injection, so not as easy to take as a tablet. So just, you know, just to know where we start, fulvestrant was approved by the FDA here in the States in 2002, and the dosing was 250 milligrams IM every month. There was no loading dose, it was 250 milligrams. The labeled dose now is 500 milligrams on day one, 500 milligrams on day 14, and then 500 milligrams uh, every month starting uh, 28 days from when you start. All right, so there's a loading dose uh, on day 14, to, you know, basically there's a day one, day 14, and then it's every 28 days starting 14 days after you finish the loading doses. So there's a loading dose, and then the monthly dose is higher. Uh, and that, that label change happened around 2010. So eight years we were giving a, a no loading dose and a half dose of full vestrant. And the question that you got to ask is how did we do that? How did we mess this up? Uh, in developing this drug, and I didn't develop it, so but I'm using the we, you know, collectively here. So let's go back to some of the, the early studies here with Fulvestrin. So uh, how and colleagues published in Lancet in 1995 what has been called a phase two study. Although they don't call it a phase two study. It's kind of like a letter to the editor, and the full publication was in 1997 in the journal Breast. And this was 19 patients, and this has been called a phase two study. Uh, and they gave the first four patients 100 milligrams of fulvestrant. And if they did fine, with the next month, they gave them 250. And then patients 5 through 19 got 250 a month. Uh, no big changes, uh, no toxicities. Um, uh, you know, there was an increase in AUC with multiple doses, so it took a while to get to steady state. Uh, AUC increased over time. Uh, and they determined that the maximum concentration, Cmax, an area under the curve for total drug exposure did not correlate to response. About a third of the patients had a partial response, a, per, a third had stable disease, a third had progressive disease. And these were 19 women with breast cancer who had progressed in the metastatic setting after tamoxifen. 
So because concentration didn't correlate with response, uh, they didn't uh, think to increase the dose, I guess. I'm re they didn't say that, but I'm, I'm trying to, to put myself into their minds why they would not try a higher dose of, of this drug. Um, not a whole lot you can find published about the development of this drug. Uh, it's an AstraZeneca drug. You can tell because it ends in Vasodex, like, uh, like Novaldex. Uh, uh, so anyway, that was the, the, the early study there. Okay. Uh, then in 2002... There were two studies, both published in JCO, one by Howe, same Howe, and Osborne. Um, uh, these were called studies 20 and 21, which means there must have been 19 other studies before this, I'm guessing. By the way, when we go through this, you'll find that the Fulvestrin folks, they had decent names for their studies. Uh, so anyway, these were parallel studies, exact same design. One was uh, the Howe study was in a European, Australian, and South African population whereas the Osborne study was in a North American population. And this was the studies, these were the studies that got Fulvestrin approved by the FDA. It's a little surprising to think about now, but God, this was 18 years ago. So back then what happened is to get FDA approval, you had to have two studies showing benefit. So what all the companies started doing is they would just take one, they'd, they'd have the same protocol and they'd just do two different studies, but the protocol was the same, and they'd be different populations. Nowadays, they, they just kind of do a larger study, and they include like a, an international population, but same study. Europe, one was basically European population. One was North American, and they were comparing 250 milligrams monthly of fulvestrin versus anastrozole, post-tamoxifen, and it was, you know, it was cool, whatever. It got approved based on that, all right? We won't go into the, the data behind that because we're talking about the dose. So the dose was 250 milligrams monthly, all right? Now, about five years later, around 1997, there are a couple abstracts that are published or presented at national meetings, all right? So one's in a Japanese patient population looking at 500 milligrams uh, and looking at loading doses and basically de determines that a higher dose is tolerable. Uh, there's also an abstract uh, that was a phase two study uh, by uh, Cooter and colleagues, or Cutter, K-U-T-E-R, that was subsequently published another five years later in 2012 in the journal Breast Cancer Research and Treatment uh, that looked at 200 patients uh, getting full vestrin in the neoadjuvant setting. And they looked at a couple different dosing schemes. Uh, so one was, um, was 500 milligrams versus 250 milligrams, uh, or they did uh, the 500 milligrams on day 14 then every month. All right? So that was, uh, they, they did the 500, the, the new dose that we have now versus the old dose. And this was in the neoadjuvant setting, though, which is not really where we use fulvestrin. Only for 16 weeks, so you're talking you know, only four months of treatment, and then they would get surgery. And what they found, the primary endpoint, was change in KI-67, which is a, a nuclear antigen marker of, cell, of active cell proliferation. And uh, after one month, KI-67 decreased 79% with the higher dose versus 47%. Uh, uh, protein expression of the estrogen receptor also went down. Uh, tumor response rate, though, was 23 versus 21%, no difference. But because this higher dose showed a decrease in these markers, there was a pharmacodynamic argument that a higher dose may be more effective. Uh, this then led uh, to some, uh, some other studies cleverly named Finder 1 and Finder 2, presumably dose-finding studies. Typically, you do that before the drug is approved, but here we're doing it a little bit behind the eight ball here. So Finder 1 was a Japanese patient population. Finder 2 was a Western patient population uh, looking at three different dosing regimens. So the old dose, 250 every month, uh, and then a loading dose where they got 500 milligrams on day one, then 250 milligrams on day 14, then 250 every 28 days, or the high dose, which was 500 uh, day one, day 14, then 500, day 29 onward every month. 
so the overall response rates really aren't that notable between these. You're talking uh, in Finder 1 going from lowest dose to highest dose, 11%, 18%, 11%. No real big difference there. Uh, secondary endpoint of PFS, 6 months, 7.5 months, 6 months median PFS. No striking difference there. That was in the Japanese patient population. In the Western patient population, response rates going from low dose to loading dose to high dose are 8.5%, 6%, 15%. Looks to be a big difference there. A doubling of, of overall response rate with the highest dose versus the lowest dose. And PFS was three months with the lowest dose versus six months with the loading dose, and then six months with the loading dose and the high dose, sort of suggesting maybe a higher dose does have some benefit. Now, these are phase two studies not designed to determine efficacy. These would be to determine, uh, well, usually the phase one study determines the maximum tolerated dose. So here's a phase, couple phase two studies looking at, is a higher dose uh, safer, no difference in toxicity, and is it more effective? And there are some hints of maybe greater efficacy if you look at some of the response rates and some of the PFS rates. Uh, in addition to what we know, or what we learned in 2007, about higher doses uh, decreasing uh, proliferation, uh, so some pharmacodynamic uh, suggestions of benefit. This ultimately leads to CONFIRM, which uh, was the name of the study that changed the label. Uh, this was published in JCO in 2010, and this enrolled patients from 2005-2007, uh, uh, which uh, would have been my last uh, two, three years of pharmacy school when this was going on. So they were looking at the, the, at the time, the FDA labeled dose of 250 milligrams every month without a loading dose versus the 500 milligram loading dose on day one, day 14, and then uh, starting 500 milligrams every month uh, with cycle two, day one, going forward. Uh, so the median PFS, uh, there's a one-month improvement in median PFS, 5.5 versus 6.5 but there was an improvement in median overall survival. Uh, median overall survival in the high dose was 26.4 months versus 22.3 months, so four-month improvement in median overall survival. That hazard ratio is 0.81, so maybe a 19% improvement in survival. Uh, that, that confidence interval goes from 0.69 to 0.96. Uh, response rates were the same. Uh, so a couple things to take away as we run through that, just to, to summarize here. Um, nowadays, FDA tends to approve drugs based on response rate. Response rate would not suggest a higher dose was beneficial. Uh, response rates were not useful uh, at looking and determining the efficacy of this drug. We know that. Uh, we now see many, many drugs approved on response rate. Uh, we don't always have the confirmatory studies. And when we do, they're not obviously named confirm, uh, as in this case. Two, uh, the drug was approved before we knew the, the maximum dose, uh, or the best dose. Uh, there are echoes of rituximab here, and potentially echoes of our, our TKIs uh, as well. Uh, there are some concerns with Jafitinib's early approval in the United States that maybe uh, we didn't use the, the highest dose that we could, and maybe a higher dose was more effective. Uh, nowadays, our TKIs, there tends to be a lot of pharmacodynamic uh, testing uh, to you know receptor occupancy and maximum signaling inhibition, in addition to determine safety and tolerability. Of dosing, uh, but this drug got approved and it was on the market for eight years uh, before we learned what the ideal dose was, and um, it was a doubling of the dose. This is a, a second time that doubling the dose was better. Uh, it didn't take them 30 years like it did for high dose donorubicin. It only took uh, you know eight to 10 years. So I guess that's an improvement uh, over time. So sometimes you know something simple like increasing the dose of a drug. Uh, 
is out there and has not been done and been considered. So I think this is an interesting story. It's not a groundbreaking thing, but if you're a newer clinician, you may not know uh, this story about fulvestrant and how uh, initially the approved dose was not the best dose, uh, and undoubtedly patients suffered because they were underdosed. And not only were they underdosed, but they were underdosed early uh, in the treatment, um, which means that uh, you know the disease was able to progress faster. Uh, and as the disease grows in the metastatic setting, it accumulates more and more mutation is more likely, po- likely to develop resistance to hormonal therapy, which probably would happen sooner. Uh, just knowing the theory of uh, tumor heterogeneity and disease progression. So that is the story of Fulvestrin's fumbling of the dose. Uh, thank you all uh, for listening. Appreciate your comments and ratings in the, uh, the iTunes store, etc. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at FarmDeepNib. Follow the podcast uh, at OncoFarmPod on Twitter and Instagram. And if you're on there this weekend, you'll see probably some pictures uh, the old stomping grounds in Charleston. Uh, thanks again for listening. And remember, doses matter.